take your Bibles, turn along with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Let me read for us from verses 5 through 9 of Titus chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to Titus on the Isle of Crete, writes this. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine And to refute those who contradict. Hear the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's help in understanding and applying these things. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word, which is a sure guide and a light in dark times. We thank you that you have given it to us that we might know your will for us as individuals and as a church. You've given it to us as an instruction book, a manual for how the church is to be organized and who it is that, it, that is to lead Christ's church. Lord, help us to understand what is here, the truth of it, the importance of it, the priority of it. And then, Lord, help us to apply it wisely in our own particular context here. We thank you, Lord, for the gift that is the church of Jesus Christ. It is precious to you. It was purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus. It is empowered by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells each believer and ministers in and among the church as it gathers. Lord Jesus, make us a more healthy church, a stronger church, a brighter light in our community. We ask this for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we began looking at this passage and at the importance of having the right people leading Christ's church. And as we looked at this passage, we saw three leadership pillars that must be in place in order for a church to be truly healthy. We saw, first of all, the priority of Christ-like leadership in the church. Then we saw the position of Christ-like leadership in the church. And finally, we began looking at the particulars of Christ-like leadership in the church. The priority of Christ-like leadership in the church, of all the things that Paul told Titus to teach and to correct in the churches of Crete, the first among them was the issue of putting the right people in place to lead the church, 
putting in place qualified godly leaders in Christ's church. Paul told Titus to set in order what remains. And the first thing he's to set in order, the first thing he's to make right, the first thing he's to shore up in these local churches is overseeing the process of installing the right leaders. Leadership in any organization is critical to the health and success of the organization. And as that is true in general, it is doubly true for Christ's church. It matters who leads Christ's church. And it matters so much that Paul listed this as job one for Titus. Secondly, we saw the position of Christ-like leadership in the church, and that is the position of elder. In the New Testament, there are three terms that are used synonymously for this one office of elder. Those three terms are elder, pastor, and overseer. Here in the letter of Titus, Paul uses the word elder in verse 5 and then seamlessly switches to the term overseer in verse 7, using these terms interchangeably, speaking of the same singular office. The term elder speaks to the individual's spiritual maturity. The term pastor has reference to the task of of shepherding God's flock. And the term overseer focuses on the position of leadership and authority vested in that leadership. As we saw last week, God's plan for leadership in Christ's church is that elders are to be male. They're to be men. And that each church is to have a plurality of these men serving as elders. Each church is to identify at least two or more spiritually mature men who will lead feed, and protect Christ's church. And then thirdly, we started looking at the particulars of Christ-like leadership in the church. These particulars come in the form of 15 qualifications for those who would serve as an elder, overseer, or pastor in Christ's church. And as I mentioned last week, Paul probably doesn't intend for this list to be comprehensive, But rather, it should serve as a general summary of the kind of things that congregations should be looking for in someone's life in order for them to be raised and elevated to the level of leadership in Christ's church. The list of qualifications here in Titus chapter 1 overlaps significantly with the list of qualifications given by Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's a lot of overlap between those two lists, but they're not identical. In our bylaws, our church bylaws, on the section regarding elder qualifications, we've sought to harmonize these two lists from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 to harmonize these two biblical lists of qualifications into a single list that has them all together. I also shared with you last week that these qualifications are really Nothing special, in a sense. They're really what every Christian should be seeking to build and cultivate into their lives. They're the kinds of qualities and characteristics and attitudes and activities that every Christian ought to seek to build into their lives. This is a description of what a Christ-like life looks like. We're not left to guess what it means to be like Christ, 
Yes, we have the example of Christ himself, but we also have helpful lists like these that help to give us a better understanding of what that looks like. We also saw that these requirements here, these qualifications, are stated not with the idea that the elder is to manifest these things perfectly in his life, but rather that he's to manifest them in an exemplary fashion in his life. He's an example of these things. The emphasis is not on the perfection of the life, but rather on the direction of the life. If perfection in any one of these areas was required, there wouldn't be anyone left to qualify and to serve. This morning, we're going to review the first three of these 15 qualifications listed here. The first three we'll review, and then, Lord willing, we'll look at the other 12 qualifications for elder as time allows. All right, the first that we looked at last week was that the elder is to be above reproach. I'm just going to summarize what we talked about last week remind you of what that means. This description is a general umbrella description in many ways. This is the summary statement of what the elder is to be. He's to be above reproach. 1 Timothy 3, Paul uses a similar descriptor. He says the elder is to be blameless. Above reproach, first of all, refers to a Christian's spiritual status before God. Of course, the elder must be a Christian. He must be above reproach in terms of his spiritual status. He is He is justified before God. He's come to the place where he's placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And God, on the basis of his grace, has declared this person righteous in his sight based upon the righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the righteous, sinless life of Jesus Christ. So the elder is to be above reproach, is to be a Christian. He's to have right standing before God. Though the enemy will accuse the elder, our spiritual enemy, Satan, who is the accuser, he's going to accuse us. Nevertheless, our standing is unchanged before God because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus stands in our stead And his righteousness becomes ours. And we are justified, irrevocably justified in God's eyes. We are above reproach spiritually. But here in Titus, it's likely that this term above reproach has a double meaning. Of course, referring to our spiritual standing. Of course, meaning that the elder is to be saved, is to be a Christian himself but also referring to the way we live our lives. We live our lives above reproach in the sense that an elder can't be credibly accused of an unrepentant pattern of sin or a life of rampant hypocrisy. The elder well exemplifies what it looks like to be a Christian. In other words, the the elder is a model of Christian maturity. That is who should lead Christ's church. And this description of being above reproach is so important that Paul lists it twice in the space of just a couple of verses. He talks about it in verse 5, and then he talks about it again in verse 7, adding that the elder functions as God's steward, a servant in God's house. 
The elder doesn't own the church. He's just a servant who's been entrusted with the care and the responsibility of leading the other servants in God's house. And so the elder views his life, his breath, and all things, and especially the church, as all belonging to God and all entrusted to him as a stewardship. And therefore, we live in such a way that is above reproach so that we will not lose the trust that has been granted to us by God himself. Secondly, the elder is to be the husband of one wife. We saw that this meant that an elder is to be faithful to his wife. Doesn't demand that the elder be married. A single man, I believe, can serve faithfully as an elder and be qualified to serve as an elder. But if he is married, that he is a one-woman man. That whether the elder is married or unmarried, they are pure in their relationships. The husband of one wife. Thirdly, children who are faithful. And again, we talked about this last week and what that means. We saw that it means that the that elders' children are generally obedient and honoring of their father and mother. That the elder takes seriously his role as leader in the home. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's part of what leading at home, leading well at home looks like. It's not a requirement that the elders' children all be saved, but that the children are being brought up to honor and obey their parents so that they, the children are not accused of rebellion or dissipation. That means wild partying while they're in the home and under the father's roof. That the father is leading well at home first before he's ever asked to lead in the church. Well, that ends the review. We'll pick it up from there. Fourthly, fourth characteristic, the elder is to not be self-willed. He is not self-willed. Beginning with this characteristic, this qualification, Paul rattles off in quick succession a list of five negative qualities that should be absent in the life of someone who would be an elder. He's not to be self-willed. These five negative qualities are like red flags. If you see them habitually or persistently in the life of someone, then you should take a hard pass on placing them in leadership. These are leadership red flags. The elder must not be self-willed. The person who would serve as an elder must not be stubborn. He must not be known as an arrogant man. He must not be overbearing. The idea here is a self-centered person. Prideful person. A person who's full of themselves. A person who's arrogant. If you see that constantly in someone's life, then you better not lay hands on them and make them an elder. Because they're going to bring that very pride right into the office of eldership. 
An elder in Christ's church should exemplify, on the other hand, humility. Just as Jesus taught and just as Jesus himself did. Jesus taught in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus not only taught the principle of servant leadership, he embodied it. He exemplified it with his own life and ministry. A self-centered elder is a contradiction in terms. It's a violation of the intention of the entire role. An elder is not given the position of elder to serve themselves, but to serve others. They are to be God's steward, God's slave, and the slave of those they serve. They understand that they own nothing, that they deserve nothing, that they are merely a servant entrusted with God's precious resources, and they have but one job, and that is to be faithful with what God has entrusted to them. No agenda beyond that. They are not self-willed. Fifthly, an elder is not quick-tempered. Not quick-tempered. This one is pretty self-explanatory. He's not a hothead. He doesn't fly off the handle. He's not someone with a short fuse. The Bible makes it clear that such a person brings destruction wherever they go. And if you lay hands on someone who's a hothead, they're going to bring that anger into the church and into the elder team. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Say, well, I'm just being real. Just being honest. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Proverbs 29, 22, An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. You want to bring destruction to a church? Lay hands on a quick-tempered Man, make him an elder. You'll be welcoming people in the front door while they're fleeing out the back door. Proverbs 30, 33. For the churning of milk produces butter. The pressing of the nose brings forth blood. So the churning of anger produces strife. The church is called the unity church is called to intimacy between brothers and sisters. And if that's not being modeled by the elders, 
The elders are known for being quick-tempered and angry and flying off the handle. Unity will suffer. The church will suffer. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Long-fused. Takes a lot to get an elder angry. Or so it should. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Whatever you think you may be accomplishing by getting angry, you can be sure that in that moment you are not accomplishing God's purposes. You are not serving the Lord's end in your anger. You say, well, Jesus got angry. He cleared the temple. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Your anger is not Jesus' anger. We can turn our righteous indignation on a dime and send it down a sinful pathway with no trouble whatsoever. Even our best moments of anger for the right things can quickly turn to sinful anger. Those who lead Christ's church must be those who are slow to anger, whose lives are characterized by Christ-like gentleness and patience with all. Not quick-tempered. Sixthly, not addicted to wine. Again, another red flag. This refers to someone, obviously, who drinks too much. They drink to the point of getting drunk. The people on the Isle of Crete were known for their heavy drinking. Dionysus, the god of wine, was said to be born on the Isle of Crete. And so he held a special place in the hearts and minds and lives of the Cretans. Dionysus was associated with revelry and excess and was sometimes depicted as a carefree and indulgent deity who was more interested in drinking and partying than in exerting himself or getting any work done. The people of Crete were known themselves for their own heavy drinking, and Paul is making it clear here that a drunkard should never be in leadership of Christ's church. Someone who is drunk should never be given the con of a ship. As we saw last week, that tragic story of the Exxon Valdez. Certainly someone who's drunk should never be given the con, as it were, of Christ's church. Now there's nothing sinful about drinking alcohol in moderation. In fact, the Bible speaks of wine as being one of the great blessings from God's good hand. A blessing to be enjoyed and given thanks for in moderation. Psalm 104, 14 and 15 says that God causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. It's a gift from God. Thought I might get an amen on that one. (laughs) You're all teetotalers, I see. (laughs) But drinking to the point of getting drunk is clearly forbidden in the scriptures. 
The Old Testament warns us about the dangers of abusing wine. Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. You're a fool to get drunk, and you will act foolishly, and you'll say things and do things that can't be unsaid and undone. Ephesians 5.18 is an outright command. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Don't do that. Do this instead. Don't get drunk, but be filled. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. A person who gets drunk, a person who is dependent upon alcohol or other controlled substances, or a person who engages in substance abuse is not someone who should be leading Christ's church. Perhaps that should go without saying, but Paul is not assuming anything. He says it. Seventh characteristic, not pugnacious. Not pugnacious. A pugnacious person is a brawler. They love a good fight. They love a good argument. You ever known anyone like that? They're always looking for a fight. They always want to get into it. They'll always take the contrarian position. They are quarrelsome. They relish the chance to get into an argument and they seem to bully their way through every conflict. It's a bully. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 tells us clearly that this is not the path for an elder. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. With gentleness. An elder is to be a lover, not a fighter. Proverbs 20 and verse 3 says that keeping away from strife is an honor for a man. But any fool will quarrel. Any fool can quarrel. It takes a wise man to avoid one. And it's an honor to avoid a quarrel. Jesus said it, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Why are they called the sons of God? Because they image their father, because they look like their father, who himself is a peacemaker, who himself went to great lengths and great expense to resolve the greatest conflict The world has ever known the conflict between God and us because of our sin. God is the greatest peacemaker. He sent his son to die that we might have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We're to image him. And those who would lead Christ's church need to image him well in this area. James 3, 17 and 18 says that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, being a peacemaker is the path of godliness. Being a peacemaker is the path of godliness. Someone is being considered as an elder and they have a reputation for being a pugnacious person. They have a reputation for quarreling. If you look behind them, there is a wake of broken relationships. Then that's a red flag. And they should not be an elder. Eighth, not fond of sordid gain. Not fond of dishonest gain. Another way of saying it is not greedy for money. First Timothy 3.3, 3, Paul says similarly that the elder must be free from the love of money. The idea here is that the elder is to be a person who isn't greedy. Cretans were renowned for their greed. One of the things they prized in their culture, one of their values was attaining more and more wealth, more and more property by whatever means. If you need to cheat your neighbor and you get ahead, well done you. Polybius, writing in the second century BC, makes this observation about the people of Crete. He says, so much, in fact, do sordid love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. There's no bad way to make a buck. The Cretans, owing to their ingrained lust of wealth, are involved in constant broils with both public and private and in murders and civil wars. They'll go to war over a dollar. Elders who lead Christ's church are to be the type of men that don't love money. They don't live for money. They aren't motivated by money. Instead, they serve the Lord willingly, voluntarily, joyfully, humbly, without a sense of what's in it for me. 1 Peter 5.2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Don't do it for the money. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that the elder can't be paid. Paul says that we shouldn't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain based on the teaching of the Old Testament, and that the workman is worthy of his wages, and that those elders who serve well are deserving of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So elders can be paid monetarily, but money should never be the motivator nor the goal of ministry in Christ's church. Instead, the elders define contentment in whatever the Lord provides, as Paul himself exemplified. 
Paul said in Philippians 4.12, I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, look, whether I get a paycheck or not, the Lord will be there strengthening me, helping me do whatever I need to do in the moment. I've lived in all kinds of circumstances under all kinds of conditions. The issue for Paul wasn't money. It was serving the Lord. Ninth, an elder must be hospitable. So we had those five nots, and here we have five or six musts. Paul is moving from these five negative traits to six positive characteristics here in Verse 8, hospitality. With this qualification, Paul is talking about sharing with others. So you can see how that would be related to greed, motivated by money, versus giving it away. Sharing with others. Hospitality. The word literally means to be a lover of strangers. Oh, it's easy to love your friends, right? It's great to have your friends over. Everybody can do that. That's not what the Christian's called to. The Christian is called to love people you don't know, people you just met. And not just love them, but invite them into your home. Welcome them in, though you know nothing about them. Not something really our culture is accustomed to doing much. Our homes are our castles and we live in them like fortresses, protecting our privacy. The elders to be hospitable, as is the Christian in general. Hospitality is a quality that should characterize every Christian, Romans 12, 13. 1 Peter 4, 9 Peter says to the church in general, he says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And why do you have to put the without complaint on there? (laughs) That makes it even harder. Franklin, Ben Franklin said that visitors and fish share the same quality. Both start to stink after three days. (laughs) Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Angels? What? What's going on there? I don't know. (laughs) But you better be hospitable. There's angels out there who need a place to sleep. Elders should have open homes and open hearts. Sharing their lives, sharing their homes, sharing their food with others, both inside the church and outside the church. Why? Because they are stewards. None of it belongs to them anyway. 
They're just to be faithful with what God has entrusted to them and to share liberally with others. Elders are to model that hospitality. Tenth, loving what is good. Loving what is good. Those who lead Christ's church must be men who love what is good. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit produces in us. Loving what is good is is loving good things, participating in good things. What is good? Good question. What is good? It's that which is true. It's that which is right. It's that which is pure. It's that which is fitting. It's that which is beautiful. Elders are to love truth, beauty, and goodness. Because that's a reflection of God himself. Elders are to be those who love and cling to what is good and who reject what is evil. Amos 5.15 says, Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Romans 12.9, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Hold on to what is good. We're to love what is good and we're to hate what is evil. And elders are to be models of Christians who are ever growing in their love for what is good and in their hatred for what is evil. Eleventh, elders are to be sensible. This is a word that describes a person who's steady. Steady Eddie. It's a person who is sound. A person who has a stable mind. A person who can be counted on and who is dependable. A person who isn't reactionary. But a person who is stable and steady in their life and in their response to others and to circumstances. It's a person who is prudent and thoughtful. It's a person who's not given to panic or to wild swings in their moods or emotions. Sensible. Twelfth. Just. The word means righteous. But with the sense of a concern for justice and for doing the right thing in any given circumstance. This is a person who's concerned for honesty, for integrity, for impartiality in all situations. Elders are going to be called on to decide important matters, to shepherd people and marriages, to call balls and strikes in personal conflicts. They need to be just. They need to be counted on that they're not going to, you know, they're buddies with so-and-so, so of course they're going to take their side. No, they need to be people who are impartial and honest and full of integrity. And concern about justice. 
13. Devout. Devout. This person is holy. Holy, of course, not in a perfect sense. In terms of our practical everyday living, none of us is holy perfectly. Not yet. But in the sense of dedicated to God, set apart for God's use and God's purpose. They view their life that way. Again, from the, from the perspective of a steward, they're a slave of Christ, a slave of God, serving in God's household. Everything that they have has been entrusted to them, and their job is to be faithful. They view their life that way. They view themselves as being set aside, and all that they have is set aside for the Lord and for His use and for His glory. They're living a life that is dedicated to the Lord, a life committed to knowing, loving, and walking with God and encouraging others to do the same. Devout. Fourth, fourteenth. I don't know when the last time was I had a fourteenth item on my outline, but you can all be thankful it doesn't happen that often. Fourteenth, self-controlled. An elder must be self-controlled, self-disciplined. That too is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.23. An elder must exemplify that they are able to say no to the flesh and yes to righteousness with regularity. An elder is to manifest that they are not given to impulsiveness. They are self-controlled, self-disciplined. Finally, 15th. They hold fast the faithful word. Now, pretty much all those qualifications are dealing with character issues. This is really the first activity that we've gotten to. The elder isn't so much called to do a job as he is to be a person. To be a certain kind of person who exemplifies and models what it is to be a Christian. What it is to follow Christ. But this is a crucial task. To hold fast the faithful word. The elder must be known for his unwavering belief in and commitment to God's word. The elder is to be a man of conviction. Convictions that have been formed over time by the study and teaching of God's word. Elders are to be mature men of the word, not mere children. Ephesians 4.14 says we're not to be children. Spiritual children, as it were, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There's all kinds of things out there that claim to be biblical teaching that aren't. And the elders got to know the difference. Discern the difference between truth and error. Between what is to be embraced and what is to be rejected. And as they hold fast the faithful word, they are able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Elders have a dual ministry of the word. 
a dual ministry of positive exhortation of the truth and of corrective refutation of error. Listen to what John Calvin says about these dual ministries of the elder or the pastor. He says the pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The pastor's to have two voices. One voice for imparting the truth and the other voice for refuting error. Paul calls this elsewhere being able to teach in the list of qualifications, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. So here in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, this is what Christian maturity looks like. This is what it means to walk with Jesus over time and become mature. This is what it looks like. It isn't some list of superhuman qualities that only a few will ever attain to. These aren't superpowers. They're simply the way every Christian should live. And these qualifications reflect a life that has been transformed by the gospel message, by the work of the Holy Spirit, and by the application of the Word of God in a life. This must be who leads Christ's church. Mature men who are following after Christ and manifesting in their lives Christ-likeness. For a church to be healthy, it must be led by Christ-like leaders. Christ's church deserves nothing less. And Jesus Christ, the Lord and head of the church, demands nothing less. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the church that you've called us into to be a part of, to fellowship with, to practice the one another's among. And you love the church so much that you gave clear direction as to who's to lead it. You lead it first and foremost by your word and by your spirit. But as in so many areas of life, you use means to accomplish your ends. And the means you use in the church is qualified, godly leaders called elders, pastors, overseers. Lord, I thank you for the godly brothers that I am privileged to serve with. I thank you, Lord, for their humility, their heart for God their desire to serve. Thank you that they're motivated not out of a love for money or a love for position, but out of a desire to serve you and serve others. Lord, preserve that and protect that in our midst and in my heart. Lord, make us a, a congregation of such servants where there is an overabundance of qualified men who might very well serve as elder. That'll be a sign of great church health among us. As Christians of every walk and every stripe are simply growing 
maturing, becoming more and more like Christ, and in the process, finding themselves suddenly qualified for leadership in Christ's church. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithful life, your righteous life, your sinless life, and your sacrificial substitutionary death that brought the church to life. We thank you that each one of us is spiritually baptized into the church at the moment of our salvation. That we become united with one another because we are spiritually in union with you, Jesus, at the moment of faith. Lord, we celebrate these eternally magnificent realities as we gather around your table that you've left for us as a remembrance of what you've done for us. Lord Jesus, take once again the throne of our hearts, the throne of our lives. Be magnified among us, we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said.